Monkey to Let Go, the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist, by Leopold Lambert. Today, colonial contemporaneity, structural racism in France, with Nasir Aganif Hello everyone, today my guest is Nassir Aghani Sulamas, who is a sociologist and anthropologist and a professor at Paris 8 in Saint-Denis, the university, and the author of a few books uh, about, uh, about structural racism in France, uh, one of which is, would be translated by uh, The Republic Exposed by Its Immigration. Uh, hello Nassira. Hello. Uh, thank you for talking to me today uh, before uh, one uh, of your intervention in the in the many events that are happening right now in uh, in Paris 8 uh, uh, against uh, the the various uh, the various policies of the government including the the new uh, legislation about labor. Uh, and so today we will speak uh, we will speak about structural racism in France in the context of the new uh, issue of the Phenomenalist magazine that will uh, talk about design and racism. Um, so if we begin by maybe introducing the context in which uh, we are speaking about structural racism in France, uh, could you maybe tell us a little bit about how much this uh, racism has the particularity of being territorialized in the city with uh, the, the, the very particular territories at the banlieues, the suburbs uh, of uh, Paris and other cities in France uh, embodies? Yeah, very interesting uh, indeed. Um, one way, maybe I would start with an anecdote sure, that, that, would, uh, that would maybe illustrate uh, uh, the oddity of the, the French experience of uh, structural racism. Um, you may or may not know that Tanehisi Coates is right now in France for a year, and he has presented his book uh, Between the World and Me, translated into French in a very terrible translation of the title, which uh, is al almost racist, in uh, colère noire for uh. those who would understand. Yeah. And interestingly, you know, he had a lot of. Uh, space in newspapers, TV programs, radio programs. And interestingly, every time he's interviewed, he speaks about structural racism in the U.S. He explains how it has become totally... Uh, I mean, you know, for the four past centuries, this is the core issue of the United States, what uh, Tony Morrison calls the stain of uh, the foundation of the United States of America. But the people, when listening to him, would never imagine that what he describes about the United States is also happening right now at the moment when they speak in France. Mm -hmm. And so they would always be or pretend to be kind of surprised by what he mentions about the structural racism. Could you explain to us what that means would be the question? And he would have to go through you know, all kind of explanations which might give uh, you know, some sense that we don't know what, what this is because France is not uh, at all a country where you could notice and you could experience structural racism. So I just wanted to start by that because it's like you know, this kind of uh, 
uh, exoticism of uh, a black American speaking in English about the situation in the United States would never ever mean anything to a French audience or to the French population. Obviously, it does. <laughs> But the journalists are kind of, you know, avoiding to address the question. So. Like many scholars or activists, I do speak about uh, structural racism. And I'm always facing this kind of, uh, you know, astonishment from my interlocutors, meaning that they don't understand why I, I put the racism at the level of the state rather than at the level of individuals that are not morally uh, entitled to what they do. You know, as if it was only a moral issue. So it's very hard to uh, have some sense of uh, how invasive and pervasive it has become. And probably the denial is the best uh, illustration of its reality. The more structural racism is being denied in France, the more it says something about Uh, the extent to which it has completely invaded and uh, it has completely structured all kind of relations and, uh, as you mentioned, territorialized relations. So this is also why sometimes people have the feeling that racism is not something that is so um, widespread because they don't know to uh, uh, they don't know anything about the suburbs. They never go to suburban. Uh, housing projects, or les banlieues, as we call them, or les cités. And so, of course, they never encountered it, uh, unless if it's on the TV, which means that since it's on the TV, it's something that is completely uh, out of their world and out of their sight. So I think that uh, one way to understand how uh, effective uh, racism and uh, structural racism has become in France is to understand that It has led to some sort of a mapping of uh, not only uh, differences, but uh, asymmetries and uh, also uh, otherness, uh, so much so that uh, space has become a tool of othering. And you obviously know who you're talking to by just noticing where people come from. And when they come from, from certain lines you know, of suburban trains, you would guess that they come from spaces that are completely segregated and racialized. And this has been going on for, I started to do field research some 35 years ago, and it was already there when I started. Mm -hmm. Well, and maybe if we go back in time, we can, we can also see where it's coming from in terms of colonialism, right? And uh, as uh, what we are... Uh, What we are seeing today is very much in the direct following of, of, of uh, the two centuries of colonial uh, colonial policies by, by France, mm -hmm. and uh, and the population that we're that is uh, stigmatized by those policies who lives uh, uh, for a certain amount of them in those in those specific neighborhoods yeah. are majoritarily uh, coming from the former colonial empire, and maybe we should say, and it's important to add, and also former. Uh, former victims of slavery in the, from mm -hmm. the Caribbeans, right? We, we tend to forget also, also about that. Like we, we're uh, actually, we less and less forget about that, especially yeah. in the kind of uh, space uh, in which I, I try to uh, push forward some, some issues. Uh, indeed, there is some sort of... Uh, 
you could call it reservations, actually. I mean, some of the this, uh, different quarters of uh, suburban, uh, um, very popular areas could be really seen as reservations. They have uh, kind, you know, boundaries. Uh, obviously, you know when you're uh, trespassing the boundary, you're recalled to that, and you can sense that from the way people look at you, or from the way all kind of rules of uh, social interactions suddenly change. And you can have some of that in the University Paris actually, because it's uh, in Saint-Denis, so it's in the middle of uh, suburban uh, popular areas. So there is something of the reservation, that uh, the pattern of uh, reservation or the design of reservation that uh, is obviously something that you could notice but you have to come with the proper tools because otherwise you could just use, you know, the class issue, mm. the low-income uh, lens, but that's not enough. Uh, and what is really at stake now in, in those suburbs is that people did not choose to live there. They were compelled to go there. They were assigned uh, um, houses or apartments uh, that were in those neighborhoods and those neighborhoods obviously uh, a long time from one one decade to another became completely racialized and uh, also very interestingly there is this kind of uh, differentiation among the racialized so you have buildings where you get only black people buildings where you could get only Arab people uh, buildings where you could get people that comes from les dom-toms, those mm. former colonies that were uh, included in the French sovereignty, where uh, French uh, slavery took place and was uh, uh, finally abolished uh, mid-19th century. But those territories only became sort of equal, which is not the case at all. I'm, I mean, this is really places where you could still uh, encounter colonization and uh, colonial relations. So the people that comes from those islands are also people that, um, that are uh, really in, in facing uh, something that has to do with the continuation of the perception of them as uh, inferior mm -hmm. and not equal citizens people that come from the Caribbean, for example, from uh, La Réunion, are French citizens for more than half a century, but they are not still considered as equal uh, as citizens. So the colonial, um, the coloniality of the French suburbs has something to do with internal colonization, on the one hand, and on the other hand, with something that could be called uh, the, the process of othering in order to build, to construct, to invent the internal enemy. Mm. And this is mainly how these uh, suburbs are uh, viewed and sometimes ruled, even by local level of uh, uh, elected people. Um, well, this is something that we are particularly seeing uh, right now, but maybe... Uh, uh, only because of the way uh, uh, the way it comes, it comes as a form of conversation in the in the media, let's say. But as as if it's just started, uh, there was a, a real uh, uh, real strike of racism that would have happened only like a year ago or something like that, which obviously is uh, could not be more wrong. 
but um, but right now we are in a particular moment where um, where we're seeing uh, we're seeing a very um, a, var- a very particular form of racism that uh, that not only uh, think of itself as legitimized legitimate but you w- you would even call it a virtuous a virtuous mm. racism and mm. I'm, I'm talking about Islamophobia here uh, in in uh, and we're seeing uh, we're seeing uh, politicians or journalists or intellectuals uh, even very far on the left on the on the left spectrum of of the uh, the French uh, politicians we would we would say that Islamophobia is not a form of racism because it's it's a sort of critique of religion or something like that but so you're you're speaking specifically of a virtuous racism could could you explain that to us please yeah i think that it takes place precisely in this kind of um, of um frame and also time when uh, France uh, feels threatened by all kinds of things and Frenchness is at stakes it has to be saved by any means and uh, for that purpose uh, all kind of uh, public uh, entrepreneurs uh, all kind of pundits or people who consider that they are entitled to express the voice of the majority which you you know you always try to look behind them who is this majority that they are talking about um, consider that um, pointing at uh, the culprit and considering that the culprit should be named and should be described and should be uh, um, questioned and uh, even uh, as a citizen because often uh, this kind of racism is, a, is against Uh, French citizens uh, is something that has become completely uh, usual I mean there's no uh, there's no eyebrow you know it's like nobody would be surprised by that everybody would consider that it has its own uh, uh, legitimacy as you said and so it's all about uh, saving France saving French identity Uh, saving uh, the so-called values of the French society from its internal enemy and its in- the invasion, what has been more and more called an invasion, uh, not only from the Muslims, but also from the blacks and, and the Arabs that live in France and that come from former colonies. Um, I think that what is, what is really at uh, the bottom line of all that is that for a lot of French, it is absolutely unbearable to consider that the former colonized could become an equal. And so any mean to prevent that from happening, although it has already happened, obviously, is considered to be legitimate and virtuous. It's, it's really a matter of um, expressing uh, uh, some sort of a very deep and old tie to the nation, uh, being patriotic, So racism can be an expression of patriotism and therefore can be considered to be uh, virtuous. And, and any mean uh, ranging from uh, um, criminalizing uh, veiled women all the way to uh, questioning uh, people who want to become activists with relation to their racialization and who become called communautaristes, which means that they are racist against the whites, mm-hmm. and they are, you know, they express some sort of an anti-white racism. Any mean is, uh, is 
is good and and is uh, completely uh, considered legitimate in order to express this kind of uh, um, you know it's it's about saving France basically. So so this is racism has become a major tool and uh, something that sometimes cannot be questioned. And of course, since it has become structural, he, here are two reasons why racism shouldn't be addressed and tackled beyond words and uh, all kinds of uh, uh, communication around it. But first, uh, racism is uh, a proper mean and a virtuous mean to save France. And second, uh, structural racism is not possible because France is a egalitarian republic. It doesn't have race. No, it doesn't have race. <laughs> yeah, they solved, they solved racism. <laughs> Ahead of time. You know, it's like uh, even before it could happen. So, so some of the, you know, this kind of uh, public conversation would, uh, would always go back to the revolution, the French revolution, explaining that uh, being French is, uh, is a political identity. It has nothing to do with any kind of ties and uh, any kind of belonging. And, of course, it doesn't, uh, it always erases or, or obscures the fact that uh, this was meant only for men and then for citizens that were in the mainland. Mm-hmm. So the colonial empire were ne- was never part of this definition of um, the political uh, uh, identity. So what happens when suddenly people who were subjects of the empire, who were natives, who were indigenes in many ways, you know, this is the word where, that we use in French, indigène, What happens when those people become French because they were born in France, because uh, they become, they are naturalized, and uh, they end up claiming equal rights? Uh, Since 1983, when there was this first march from uh, children of immigrants claiming uh, equality and fighting uh, racism, This claim has been made time and time and time again, and obviously it it still raises some sort of a misunderstanding or kind of a, um, almost uh, you know it's kind of um, they are felt as if they want to completely destabilize uh, the institutions of the French Republic. Mm-hmm. Um. So this issue is about uh, design and racism, and I, I was particularly eager to interpret design in all possible meaning, and including, uh, of course, as we are speaking, the, the design of structures, but also the design of narratives that mm-hmm. um, uh, sustain those structures. And you, you briefly mentioned uh, women will wear a hijab uh, uh, earlier, and this is something we we already uh, sort of examine a little bit in the third issue about clothing politics. Um, But uh, right now we're we're uh, seeing another uh, surge uh, against uh, against women wearing hijab in a, in a sort of uh, in the end relatively clumsy narrative because we, we can see we can see when people lose their calm as uh, as their as a current uh, minister of uh, um, uh, women's rights women's rights and family and children yes. like congrats for the name of the of the of the ministry uh, who. Um, Who declared them as uh, political opponents? And I mean, we, we, she said it with absolutely outrageous words. But maybe beyond the outrageous words, we we might have missed the outrageous idea sometimes in the fact that they are for her political opponents, 
and they must be uh, they must be uh, quote unquote saved against their own will. Uh, their own will. So, could you could you maybe tell us a little bit about that? Because I think this is also, uh, although it has some echoes in other countries like the UK or the US, but it, it's, it's quite not as it's, it's quite nothing like what we're seeing in France. Yeah, this is really one of the French exceptions. There there are many of them, but this is really one that has become completely. Uh, um, that completely shapes the, the state of mind and the, and the state of politics in France. So much so that you could say that, in a way, uh, the veil is, has become some sort of an ultimate uh, boundary in the public space in France, and that uh, the mere appearance of a veil uh, kind of brings with it all kind of representations, narratives, uh, all kind of obsessions that has uh, that have to do with uh, not quite with the freedom of women. Actually, it has more to do with the state of order. How do you uh, preserve the order in the French society? How do you manage to make sure that um, the republican conception of what is freedom, of what is liberty, what is equality? What is freedom of speech? What is freedom of, of thought and of belief means? And, and the veil has become uh, this kind of uh, token and decoy that now and again is supposed to express and to uh, epitomize all of that in, in just not just one word, but in one person. Um, so, so you could experience uh, uh, times when uh, women who wear the veil can be assaulted, can be physically assaulted, because uh, they appear or they, they seem to be some sort of, uh, of an insult to what France means, of uh, a denial of what it, uh, it fancies itself to be. And, uh, of course, it, it keeps France and, and the, the public discourse in France uh, from entertaining the idea that uh, France is still a very um, um, is, is a country where uh, a lot of people are um, uh, very progressive and I think that this is also something that has been totally missed in the way the architecture is being uh, conceived in France I was thinking about that because uh, of the first question all the housing projects were built in the spirit of bringing progress to the low-income families, to the working class, and even to, at the beginning, to immigrants that would have the chance, because it was not easy at that time to, to have a, a house in this kind of housing project. But obviously what everybody missed is that the progress was already vanishing just as the sameness, actually. So there is this very interesting uh, dynamics in which uh, progress and Frenchness vanish at the same time. Uh, they are not possible anymore in the way they were conceived before. And, and the space uh, speaks for that. It, it, gives, uh, it witnesses this kind of double vanishing. And uh, this might have led to the fact that at some point the new immigrants that were uh, visibly uh, challenging the white Frenchness are also the ones that 
were uh, missing the progress that was uh, this kind of you know universal promise that they would not benefit from it because uh, they were the ones that were uh, out of jobs in the first place. So now they are considered to be responsible for both, not only for the vanishing of white Frenchness, but also for the vanishing of progress. They are all often blamed because, uh, you know, they, they are poorly paid and so they become kind of uh, challenging uh, the, the core labor market. And at the same time, they are considered to be the ones that have completely destroyed the environment in which they live. I mean, this notion that the buildings were not meant at all to last, this was obvious from the beginning. And it was not the purpose of this kind of buildings to last. It was just you know, to make sure that people would be housed. But uh, they end up being uh, co considered responsible for uh, the decay of all these uh, suburban areas and the fact that they did not survive time. And so they kind of uh, epitomize all kind of anxieties, all kind of uh, um, disappointments, and also uh, they are the proper decoy in order not to question the state and the way the state uh, was uh, deceptive in so many ways. The, the state was not able to address many questions that have been raised now for past, uh, the past half century. And so the, the, not only the immigrants, but the, the racialized minorities become responsible for that. Um, something you do in your work that um, really shows well the intricacy of, of this uh, system of white uh, supremacy in, in France is uh, distinguishing the um, figures of acceptability or figures of exemplarity within mm -hmm. uh, the within the marginalized, uh, racialized uh, populations in a sort of um, in a sort of uh, legitimization that it's not. Uh, It's not the racialized population that's mm -hmm. being targeted, because look, it's it's a bit it's a bit like uh, my my best friend is black uh, argument at the scale of uh, at the scale of a state, mm -hmm. where where we have figures that uh, corresponds to um, visually corresponds to uh, what the state expects uh, uh, its uh, racialized uh, uh, citizens to. Uh, behave mm -hmm. and you even gi give them name I mean it's going to be a bit hard to translate in English but I don't know that la borette when it comes to women uh, yeah it's a it's a vernacular expression that is yeah. not translatable but uh, you know the the accurate way to to name it in English would be the French uh, the young French Arab woman uh, which is supposed to express um, her eagerness to be integrated in the French uh, uh, society and ready to do whatever it takes to be integrated. So the Beurette has become the stereotype of, uh, of, of this youth, especially female youth, that uh, um, misses the point about uh, structural racism and intends to save herself on her own from her group, from her family, because she's, uh, she's strongly uh, requested that. It's a, it's a strong demand from the state that they make the demonstration, that they prove that integration is, uh, is possible. So you have the, the Beret, you have the, the Arab boy, who is this kind of uh, mix between the Orientalist 
and uh, the one could say also this kind of uh, notion of a violent male that can be orientalized in order to be completely criminalized uh, about his behavior, being violent, being a raper, uh, compelling women to veil because uh, he's a sexual predator. And this, this figure has become absolutely central. And a, mo- a long time, uh, I realized that it, it was not just speaking to the French society, but it was also speaking to other European uh, uh, societies. I, I, was, I realized that the, the, the past uh, uh, moral panic of uh, Cologne in Germany could also be uh, analyzed in terms of the Arab boy. What is he doing here? How come he could become so present and so uh, and invade so easily our society? So much so that uh, he imposes on our women, quote unquote, uh, the, his behavior and his uh, sexual violence. So this is really something that has become much more wider, uh, much more. Um, uh, illustrative of situations that take place in many Western countries. And you would have, of course, the, the veiled woman, who is supposed to be uh, the explanation and the expression of uh, alienation and the survival, you know, coming from the past, as if she, she was completely some sort of an anachronism of a past that cannot uh, pass, that cannot end, and that imposes itself in, in today's world. Whereas we perfectly know that women who veil, especially when young, they are individuals like many others. They are complex. They have multiple belongings and identities, and they make bricolage in order to make them fit in in their own um, views and in their own expectations. So there is a way to completely erase that, to flatten all these experiences in order to make to to have them available for this kind of narrative of um, a civilization under threat and under destruction because of its uh, internal, religious, racial, ethnic minorities. Mm-hmm. And you had also the secular, the secular Muslims? That yeah. We could well, call like the, the gentle imam, <laughs> like that is always yeah. invited on TV. When yes, <laughs> exactly. So obviously this is typically the kind of actor who is not sovereign, he has or she has no ability whatsoever to express uh, any anything personal. They are on duty and they do the lip service or to put it in my own words, which is a little more uh, critical. Uh, I would say that they, um, they become again anew uh, those uh, native populations that work with the colonial power and they serve. They, they serve this power and they, sometimes this power outsources to them all kind of uh, public uh, statements uh, or public policies that they don't want to deal with. Uh, the, we have had uh, for the past 10 years many examples of women who, who were appointed as ministers, for example, just because they were Arab or black. And after all, whatever they said... It's not was not uh, was not the point. To, uh, the, the purpose was not to include in the in the elite people who are 
have a very high level of conscience, are able to change things, and to bring to the table uh, questions that uh, are not addressed. Those women were not expected to do that. And the last example is very interesting: the, the you know, the reform of uh, the labor uh, policy that is taking place was promoted by a woman who is called uh, Miriam El Khomri. She's from Moroccan descent, and uh, she was blamed for putting forward this law. But we all know that it's the government that uh, decided that she would be the promoter of the law. And uh, maybe they had some sense that it would uh, be very badly received in the wider society. But nobody pays notice to the fact that the law is completely and often and on and on and on blamed by using the Arab name of this minister. So that says something also of how the public space is being designed by other languages, by other sounds that you hear now and then. And El Khomri, for example, is a word that has never been used as, uh, as often since the past month. And interestingly, in Arabic, al-Khomri means brown. So it's like, I mean, and nobody ever mentions that. I had to write a paper about that in, on my blog in order to say, you know, this is not just a law. It's also something that resonates it, it, colonial. There is a colonial resonance uh, of the fact that this woman bears a name that means brown. Mm -hmm and that she's put forward and she's sent you know, to the front in order to sell this law that nobody wants. Mm -hmm. And I think it says a lot as well in, the, in those reactions how much the, the sort of uh, old-school left movements are still extremely white and extremely male as well, mm -hmm. and the fact the way, the way uh, this minister in particular has been singled out and, and sort of been the, the object of slogans and, and things like that are yeah. extremely problematic as well. But m maybe to talk precisely of, the, of those sort of resist, resistive movements to finish this conversation could, and, and to maybe try to end up with a sort of uh, encouraging uh, mm -hmm. note in, in movements that are being carried right now that are extremely interesting to, to follow. Could you, could you maybe uh, describe a little bit for us uh, uh, the the many things that are being organized uh, uh, right now by led by people who are actually uh, uh, stigmatized by this structural racism we've been talking about? Yeah, actually it, it is the, the impetus for all these movements is the fact that everybody agrees on the, on the, the issue of the, of the structural racism and how it has to be addressed and tackled. So one major uh, outcome of this is the fact that you would have mobilization, mobilizations from racialized people and uh, on their own. I mean, they don't want to be part of any kind of state uh, agency. They want to be autonomous. They uh, have um, this very accurate sense of uh, coalition that they have to build in order to, uh, to push forward their own agenda. So uh, I was part of one of these movements that uh, had a demonstration mm, last uh, Yes, mm. so the March of Women for Dignity. And interestingly, the way I put it was to say this is a declaration of independence. It is to say that you know, these are sovereign subjects. They don't want to be bought or sold by any kind of uh, you know, 
uh, master because uh, white men at the government consider that they own these women. And so it's also about saying you don't own anything. And obviously all the narratives that have been put forward for the past decades are completely out of sight and they are out of focus, out of purpose. So this movement, like many others, the ones that fight against state violence, the police violence, the murders of young men, mm. who most of them are Arab or black and have been killed for the past 40 years. By the police? By the police, mm. most of them. Uh, and most of the time they don't get convicted for that. Uh, so it's also about pushing forward issues that usually are considered to be completely um, unwelcome and uh, exaggerated. I mean, as if the minorities who encounter stop and search uh, on a daily basis, especially young men who are being stopped and searched for like three, four times a day or often during the week, as if all this meant uh, to dismantle uh, this conception of the state as a, and the republic as an open space uh, for freedom. So there is this, this, this will and, and this... Um, Uh, this collective notion that something can be uh, put forward and it's also about every time that there is a racist statement to to point at it and to say this is not this is not something that we will accept anymore so uh, Phil uh, make statements write in the newspapers demonstrate and also uh, uh, feel um, how do you say plant um, Uh, a complaint complaint uh, against uh, what is happening so I, I think this might uh, it will take a long time because you know the first time I, I demonstrated about that it was uh, 1983 so it's been a while but uh, there is some hope that uh, the the change of uh, not only of uh, opposition but also the change of uh, lexicon The fact that today it's about saying that racialization has become a, stretch, a structural uh, process is something that uh, might end up uh, touching, especially and reaching out at people that experience that, that on a daily basis, but so far remain silent. So it's by reclaiming uh, not only a voice, but also the space where to express this voice. Great. Well, that seems like a great conclusion. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nazira. Thank you. Uh, and uh, I'm very happy to know that this conversation will be featured directly in the in the magazine as as well as on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.